Praise God. Thank you guys so much for the gift. Um, thank you for your letters. Uh, it means a lot to me and my family last time that we received that from y'all, the prayers. Um, I, I always go back to it and read it. Um, and, and I thank God for y'all. I will say this one time, as Tony was uh, handing this to me, I saw the first one, and then I read very briefly the second one, and it started with babe. And I was like, oh, no, who's calling me babe? I kept reading, and thank God it was my wife. So praise God. <laughs> thank God it was my wife. I was like, wow, y'all taking it way too far. <laughs> um, but seriously, thank y'all. Uh, we, we absolutely love y'all. Um, and we want to continue to pray for each and every one of you guys as well. With that said, uh, welcome to this church. If you are a guest, welcome to First Baptist Church of Thibodeau. If you are a member, know that we've been praying for you guys and we love you all dearly. Uh, the title of today's sermon is Saul's Anointing. Saul's Anointing. The people asked for a worldly king, and guess what? God gave them a worldly king. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 4 through 5, it says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in, the, in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like the other nations. And how did God respond? God responded by giving them exactly what they asked. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 22, it mentioned, And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. God gave them the king that they have asked for, the worldly king. And Saul's name is, basically means ask for. And Saul was the impressive king, so-called, on the physical aspect of things, his physical stature. So we are told he was this handsome, he was tall, perhaps very charismatic. And, and all of these things seem to be very impressive. Man looks on the outside, but God looks on the inside. I cannot help but think of the movie, the Marvel movie, uh, Captain America, the First Avenger. And in that particular show, we have this man by the name of Steve Rogers, who is this scrawny, sickly man, but he has a passion and he wants to fight against the Nazis. Even his best friend Bucky says to him, you're not strong enough, quit. And he goes and he applies and he applies and he applies. And every time he is denied until he met this doctor and this scientist that saw past his physical appearance. And he saw his heart. He gave him a, a chance, and we know the end of the movie. This Steve Rogers become Captain America. Friends, when we look at this in our spiritual lives, we are like the Steve Rogers. We are unequipped in so many ways. If we come before God and we say to God that we are equipped, there are major issues with that. That we are able, there are major issues with that. What God does and what he chooses, and this is the motif and the theme in Scripture, that God always chooses to use the unequipped, then he equips them. He uses the ordinary people, and he makes them do extraordinary things. He uses the ones who are incapable to do capable things. This is our God. 
This is what we find in Scripture on a consistent basis. But what about confidence, Kevin? Do you mean to tell me as a Christian, I should say to myself that I shouldn't be confident? No, we should be confident, but not in our abilities, but confident in the God who gives us those abilities. That's the confidence of a Christian. This should always be our disposition, not arrogance, but confidence in God. Confidence in what he's doing in our life. We don't see this in Saul and the people of Israel. They're all about the physical appearance. They're all about charisma. They're all about what the world will look as a leader. But God is looking at the heart. I want us to see this morning exactly as we observe that God anoints Saul to be able to lead his people. Anointing here basically means to consecrate. So God would consecrate things or people, and especially in the Old Testament, specifically he anointed his priests and set them aside to do his work. Here is the first time that we see that God will consecrate, set aside a king. Every king is meant to be set aside for God. It is not his kingdom. It is God's kingdom. He's not building his empire. He's working for God. And this is the first thing that Saul should have seen. And every king in the Bible, you ought to be submissive to God. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. So this morning, I want us to observe two points within this passage. One, Saul's coronation. We see this in verses 1 through 2. And two, Saul's confirmation. We see this in verses 3 through 16. Join me as we pray before we dive into the passage of Scripture. Father, we are here before you, knowing that you equip the unequipped, that you will use ordinary people to do extraordinary things. We see this in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. Jesus chose 12 ordinary men to do extraordinary things. Our desire is to say to you, God, that we are ordinary. There is nothing that we can give you, Father. You are King of kings and Lord of lords. You are the God of this universe, and you are not impressed with our abilities. What you are looking for, Father, is what you saw in the heart of this tax collector who went and prayed and says, God, be merciful to me because I am a sinner. So, God, I pray that we have this humble disposition before you. We are confident in what you will do, what you have done, what you will continue to do. But, God, please do not allow us to be arrogant in our spirituality. We are before you, and we want to serve you. So teach us what we do not know. Make us what we are not, and give us what we do not have. And God's people said, amen, amen. The first point here is Saul's coronation. Saul's coronation. We, we see here what Samuel does, right? So in chapter 9, verse 27, he escorts Saul out by the gates, the two gates, and that's Samuel. And Samuel tells Saul of what God will do. He says to him that I may make known to you your words in chapter 9, verse 27. And then he says to him, has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people, Israel, in chapter 10, verse 1. And he further 
added, and you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. So in Saul's anointing, don't miss this, we see two things here. What are they? First, God has authority over Saul. This is what Samuel is telling Saul. Pay close attention to this, Saul. Although you will be king of the people, this is God's kingdom. God will have authority over you. This is God's people. They are God's people. So I think it's important for us to observe this. And coming closer, friends, and don't miss this. The issue here is that Saul will desert God. Saul will not turn to God. He will not be submissive to God. And we see the same pattern in the life of many of the kings after Saul. They took it upon themselves to believe that this is their kingdom. That's my people. But friends, notice this very carefully, that God is saying that this is his kingdom and they are his people. I cannot help but think about even the church altogether, that God has anointed pastors to be able to preach the word and to lead God's people. But we live in a world today where many pastors are trying to build their own empires. They're putting heavy burdens on people. They're taking and taking and taking like Saul and like the kings of old. And here specifically, friends, just like the king in that time who was called to serve God and serve God's people under the authority of God, pastors are called to serve God and serve God's people, to love God's people, to lead God's people. Instead of building your own empire, you are called to promote the kingdom of God and call people to see the kingdom of God. Another issue that we have in the church today is that we put pastors on pedestal. We treat them like celebrities. But friends, we fail to understand the importance of Scripture and what Scripture is calling for us to do and to see. We also have pastors who will not even be among the people. That's too much for them. That's beneath them is what they're saying. I had one pastor who said to me, he, doesn't, he will not waste his time talking to people in the congregation. He said, my job is to preach and to lead. And I will get other people to lead, to talk to them in that way, but I will not waste my time. I don't deal with people's issues, is what he said to me. But that's not pastoring. You have a business, and that's what it is. And here specifically, we notice that Saul, God has authority over Saul. But don't miss this. Notice the second point in his anointing. We see God's love for his people. God's love for his people. Although God gives the people what they ask for, we see God's affection for his people. God is telling Saul over and over and over again, that's my people. I will rescue them. I will use you to help them. Friends, what a great picture here that we have that God calls his people, notice this, his heritage. His heritage. It expresses the preeminence of God's ownership 
over the people. Heritage is an undisputed possession that cannot be transferred to another. God is saying, you're my people. You know the beautiful thing about God in the Old Testament, when you read Scripture, you see how the people rebel against God over and over and over again, from Genesis to Malachi. But you consistently see the hesed of God, the steadfast love of God, the covenantal love of God, how he consistently pursues his people. And people will say to you, the God of the Old Testament is an angry God. It's all about his wrath. No, it's about his love. And we see it on a consistent basis here, how God is pursuing his people. So friends, I have a few questions to ask you. Do you know that you are his possession if you have repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus Christ? Do you know that you are his son and daughter? And according to John chapter 1, verse 12, many who have received him, he gave them the right to become children of God. That if you have repented of your sins, if you have faith in Jesus, you are his son, you are his daughter. What a great privilege. And God's steadfast love is towards you. His covenantal love is there. Do you know that you are his heritage, his possession? Do you know that he bought you with a price? And that's the blood of his son. Do you know that he has tasked you with a mission, and that is to spread the gospel? Please understand the love of God here. We read this passage of Scripture, and we see of God's love for Israel. And on this side of the cross, we notice what Jesus has done for us, and his love is set towards us. J.C. Ryle, this is what he noted, the love of Christ towards his people is a deep well which has no bottom. If only the people of Israel would see this, perhaps it would have been genuine repentance. But no. Are you seeing this? Are you seeing this? For those of you who are not a Christian this morning, God's love is set toward you, and he wants you to repent and come and trust in him. Will you do that? Will you be a part of his flock, his heritage, his possession? Will you repent and trust in Jesus and have this amazing relationship and fellowship with the God of this universe? Will you? Notice with me the second point here. Saul's confirmation. Saul's confirmation. No, notice this very carefully, how God confirms to Saul everything that he will do. It is so detailed that it's amazing. Before Saul would even encounter any of this, here is God speaking through Samuel and making sure that Saul understands that God is in control. God is in control. 
Notice with me very carefully here. There are three signs here. Three signs in Scripture here. The first sign, sign we see, it foretold that near the tomb of Rachel, Saul would encounter two men who would inform Saul of, finding, of the findings of the donkeys and his father concern of his safety. Who's prophesying here? Samuel. Samuel is telling Saul, this is what's going to happen. You will go to the tomb of Rachel, near the tomb of Rachel, you'll find two men, and the two men are going to tell you exactly what I will tell you. They'll tell you the donkeys are fine, and your dad is concerned. And that's exactly what happened. What's the second sign? The second sign would force Saul to acknowledge his anointed status. And this is how amazing God is. God says to him here that three men on their way to Bethel. Bethel is a place of worship. These men are on their way to worship God. And they have products in their hands. They have bread. They have wine. Goatskins. They have all these things, right? And they're going to offer that up to God. And Samuel here tells Saul, you will encounter three men with these things in their possession. And when they see you, they will greet you and give it to you. Do you get the, the aspect of what's happening here? What Samuel is telling Saul here is that he is anointed and he is favored. And these people are giving him these things. It is for him to recognize that the people of Israel will be okay with him being a king. God, God is allowing that assurance here for Saul. He is. The third sign happened near Saul's home at Gibeath Elohim, meaning the hill of God. And what's the third sign that he will see prophets and these prophets would sing, and they would prophesy, and Saul himself would prophesy. He would prophesy. There's an amazing sign again. Three signs, three prophecies that actually happened. But let me help you understand this. The first sign was to assure him that he could put the past behind, and his future role was not to be a farmer, but to be a king. That, that was the whole point of the first sign. Put, put your past behind you. You're, you're no longer going to be a farmer, Saul. You will be a king, and God has given him this sign. The second sign was to assure him that the Israelites would recognize him as a king. Here are those people going to worship, and they are taking what was meant for worship and giving it to Saul recognizing that he will be a king. And the third sign would give him assurance that he would be equipped for the task. That God will allow him to do it. God will allow him to kill some of the Philistines. God will allow him to protect the people of God. It wouldn't come from his ability. It would come from God himself. Three signs here. And then finally, don't miss this, friends. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. Samuel says to him, and he gives him instructions by letting him know, even if he is the king, he needs the word of God to continue. 
He needs God's word to continue. In verse 8, he says, Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offering and sacrifices of peace offering. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. Every king in that, in the Old Testament, needed the word of God to lead them and guide them. But most of them neglected the word of God and killed the prophets of God. This is why Jesus, in Luke chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, cried out. And this is what he said. O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophet and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered you children together as hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing behold your house is forsaken and i tell you you will not see me until you say blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord so it was the disposition of the israelites to kill prophets who came saying thus says the lord but wait What's going on with Saul here? Do you see it? There are phrases such as, a new heart prophesied, spirit rushed upon him, a new man. It seems as if that Saul was regenerated. It seems as if Saul was converted. It seems as if he was saved. Was the narrator wrong here? Is the narrator wrong? So, so if we believe that Saul was saved because of the language used here, then we have to believe later on that Saul lost his salvation. We, we have to believe that. But we know that that particular doctrine is not of the Bible. And I want to prove that to you. Here specifically, the narrator is not wrong. We have been told about Saul's disposition We've been told about the way he treats God, the way he, he, he is acting, his actions, and, and all these things. That we are told that God chose a man specifically so that the people can learn a lesson. And here specifically, we must understand the Bible as a whole, what it does. The Bible tells us consistently that true salvation produces true change. For example, we have this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Also, we have in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 15, he says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also must be holy in all your conduct. And then we have John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, if you are genuinely saved, is what Jesus is saying, you will keep my commandment coming closer coming closer obedience does not produce salvation but salvation produces obedience the greatest 
fruit of salvation is a lifestyle that follows God. A lifestyle that makes much of God. Because we've recognized the work of God. And therefore, there is a great appreciation to live for God. But there are two things that left me puzzled about Saul's actions here. And I want you to follow with me. I want you to see that Saul wasn't an obedient person. Although he experienced all of these things, which I will explain to you. But the text tells us something amazing about Saul. Puzzling about Saul. Discouraging about Saul. First, we see Saul's lack of obedience after the signs were confirmed. What, what do you mean, Kevin? What do you mean? Let's read verses 5 through 7 of chapter 10, and you will see what I'm talking about. After that, you shall go to Gibeath Elohim. This is where Saul is from. This is his home. When he goes there, what will he see? He will see a garrison, soldiers, stationed, Philistine soldiers, a station in Saul's hometown. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with heart, with flute, with lie, before them prophesying, then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Here it is. Now, when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Now stop. We read this and we're like, okay. Whatever my hands called to, I want to worship God. You know, put my hands in my pocket. You know, I want to scratch my nose, right? Many scholars believe that this phrase right here means to fight against the Philistines. That when the Spirit of God comes upon you, that you will fight against the Philistines in your hometown. Obedience number one. This happens, this is what you need to do, Saul. Saul doesn't do it. That's not what he does here. He leaves. He, he's not obeying what Samuel says here. Well, how do you even know that? Well, later on, Samuel will say to him, there is this offering, this peace offering, right? Do you notice what he mentions here? He says, you will meet me, and then there will be this offering that, that's offered. And one specifically is the peace offering. And the peace offering was met with whenever there was a sense of war that you will be able to have this peace offering. So Samuel was saying, do all of these things and when you meet me, here are two offerings we're going to do. And one specifically is a peace offering because of the fact that you should have victory over the Philistines. But Saul does not do it. Saul is disobedient here. Absolutely disobedient. What, what else? What else do we see here, Kevin? Give me evidence that Saul wasn't genuinely converted. We just mentioned that obedience is the key here. He is not obeying God. And we will see the very reason the kingdom will be taken away from him is because of his constant disobedience. Samuel will say to him, go destroy everything, sacrifice, don't sacrifice anything, and he keeps animals for himself, and he sacrificed some of them. 
And Samuel is upset. Why did you disobey God? This is his character, consistently disobeying God. So we know that genuine salvation, based on Scripture, what? Produces obedience. We see a consistent attitude of disobedience. Notice the second point here. We see a lack of zeal when he encountered God and the Spirit of God. What do you mean here, Kevin? Do you notice when Saul's uncle asked him, tell me everything that Samuel said? The only thing he mentioned is that Samuel told me that the donkeys are okay. Man, I just experienced all of this. I experienced the prophets. I experienced prophesying. I experienced the rush of the Spirit upon me. And if I was genuinely saved, there's no way possible you can keep me from expressing that to people. That's one of the greatest characteristics of a Christian. You cannot keep us silent when God is doing something amazing. This is exactly what David said. Restore to me a right spirit. Then what? Then I will tell the nations of your glory. That's not what Saul is doing here. That's not what he's doing here. He remains silent. Coming closer and don't miss this. Genuine salvation cannot be restricted. It is a transformation that happens on the inside and is expressed on the outside with our mouths and actions. You get it. It is a transformation. Paul talks about the power of God. Do not miss. This is the atomic bomb that when it comes and it hits, it changes everything. Jesus expressed when someone finds salvation, he goes and he finds this treasure. He sells everything that he has and he goes and he buys that land. There is a beauty of salvation. There's no sense of being quiet. There's expressing to the world what God has done. And we do not see this in the life of Saul. So, what did he mean when he says here, the Spirit came upon Saul? Do you see it? The Spirit rushed upon Saul. Well, well Kevin, this is the Holy Spirit of God. The Spirit of God, if he rushes, if he moves, if he uses, then that person must be a Christian. No, no. God often uses people who are not saved to accomplish his purpose. Did you get this? We have a perfect example of this in the book of Numbers. Numbers 24, here's Balaam, a false prophet, going to prophesy against the people of God. God calls this donkey to speak to Balaam and says to Balaam, no, you will not. No, you will not curse my children, but I will give good words so you can say to my children about my children. But we have no evidence in Scripture of Balaam getting saved. As a matter of fact, we have enough evidence to say that he was never saved. He remained a false prophet. 
But in Numbers chapter 24, it mentions that the Spirit of God came upon Balaam. You don't believe me? Say for yourself. And Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel camping tribe by tribe, and the Spirit of God came upon him. Do you have other evidence of this, Kevin? Yes, in the New Testament as well. In the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father. What, what, is, what is the heart here? What does genuine salvation produce? Obedience. The one who does the will of my Father. And he says, on that day, don't miss this, coming closer, on that day, Many will say to me, this is the word of our Lord, 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 did I not prophesy in your name? Isn't that exactly what Paul, Saul did? Did I not cast out demons in your name? When was the last time you prophesied? When was the last time you cast out demons? Well, they've done all of these things and do mighty works in your name. Perhaps heal here. Perhaps a lot of miracles here these people are doing and notice what our Lord says and then he says I declare to them I never knew you depart from me you workers of lawlessness not that I knew you and I don't know you now but I never knew you you were never a part of me this is a strong Greek word here never ever 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 I don't know you you're not a part of me Yet they did all of these wonderful works. Friends, and how can we forget Judas? You know when Jesus sent out two by two to cast out demons, to heal, to do all of these things, you know who was with the disciples? Judas. What did Jesus say about Judas? He was the son of perdition. We are told throughout the gospel, even the Apostles are telling us, the disciples are telling us the reason why he did certain things because he was greedy for money. Judas was never converted. He was not. So we go back to Saul. Saul experienced all of these things. And it's exactly what the book of Hebrews mentioned. They tasted of the gift of the Holy Spirit. What does he mean by that? Exactly what Saul is doing. Prophesying, the Spirit of God rushing upon you. These are all acts of the Spirit using someone. But the Spirit can use you without you being saved. And that's scary. That is very scary. Because if you trust in your works, if you trust in your abilities, you miss everything. What must you trust in Jesus? And you go before him and you say, God, heal me. Heal me. Cause me to be obedient in the simple things. The way I love my wife. The way I love my husband. The way I love my children. The way I love others around me. We live in a world where we want big things, man. We want to heal. We want to prophesy. We want to do all of these things. But then in our homes, we are living like the devil. In our job site, we're living like the devil. We walk around with our Bibles and quoting Scripture. Friends, obey God in the simple things. That's the heart of Christianity. 
That's the fruit of genuine salvation. So I want to share this with you. And please listen to this. It is important that you hold on to the fact of eternal security. You must. You must believe that if God begins a work in you, he will complete it until the day of redemption. You have to believe that. Because if you do not, you are in an insecure relationship. That you are in a relationship with somebody that you never know when that person is going to be mad at you, when they're going to walk out, when you're going to walk out. But listen, when God makes a covenant relationship, he seals it. And when he seals it, it's for our good. That's why the Bible says in the New Testament that the Apostle Paul says he is faithful even when we are faithless. If I think I can lose the salvation that God has given to me, there is no stability. It cannot be. The next aspect of it is this. Believing in eternal security is not a license to sin. We shouldn't say to ourselves, well, because I believe in eternal security, I could do whatever I want. No. It's a freedom to worship God even more, to thank God even more. And this is exactly what we see here. When we read about Saul, we ask the question, was Saul saved and lost his salvation? No, he was not. At the same time, for those of us who are truly saved, we must trust in the grace of God and obey our God. And as I close, notice the contrast between Saul and Jesus. Saul is the earthly king. Jesus fulfills that role for us. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. Saul will take. Jesus gave his life on our behalf. Saul couldn't find donkeys. Jesus walked into Jerusalem, went on a donkey, and traveled to Jerusalem on a donkey, signifying that he is the king that will bring peace. Saul was not obedient, but Jesus was perfect in his obedience. And scholars call it active obedience, which basically means that Jesus obeyed God to the fullest. He fulfilled the law. That's why he mentioned in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. That's why when you read in the Gospels, and he says, so that it will be fulfilled, so that it will be fulfilled, and it was fulfilled to show you Jesus' active obedience. He obeyed perfectly. But not only active obedience, but there is also passive obedience. He yielded his life and his will to die on the cross, to suffer on your behalf. He was innocent. Did Saul do that? No, he didn't. Saul didn't have any active obedience or even any passive obedience, right? Saul thought about himself. So who is the perfect king here? Who is the better king here? It is not Saul. And I have news for you. As good as David is, it's still not David. It is Jesus. It is Jesus here. So friends, will you turn to Jesus this morning? Do you see your deficiencies? Do you see the fact that you uh, are incapable? You say to yourself, I am ordinary. 
that's exactly what Jesus wants. He wants to use you this morning. Will you turn to him? Will you trust him? Join me as we pray. Father, I am thankful for the cross and the word of God. Thank you for our salvation that's been secured by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. The security of my salvation does not depend on whether um, I walk away, um, because God, if there is true salvation, you will keep me. And I'm thankful for Jude that says he keeps us from stumbling. And who is that? It's Jesus. So God, I pray for those in this room today, all of us in this room today, that we check our hearts. We ask ourselves, is there genuine salvation? Is there obedience for our Lord? And God, if there isn't any, I pray that we will be challenged to bow our knees to God. If there is, that there is security in our salvation to pursue Jesus, to walk with Jesus, and when we do stumble, to know that there is grace, God. So, Father, I pray for our hearts. As we partake of the Lord's Supper, let us remind ourselves of the work of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is a better king, a superlatively better king. We love you and we worship you. Amen. Amen.